The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I am your guest host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. It's been about three years since I've been a regular on the show, and I was delighted when Hal called and asked me to sub in for a week or two. That is fantastic, and I am very glad to be back with you uh, behind the Doctor's Lounge microphone. One of the things that a guest host can do for you, and I think all shows should have guest hosts once in a while, is to give you a little different perspective. Uh, there's no question listening to the same hosts talk about similar things, and I was as guilty of this as anyone. Uh, it's good to get a fresh perspective once in a while and uh, and get a different background from a different human being. So on that note, I'm going to try to do something very different uh, and share with you some of the things that I have learned in the three years uh, since I've been uh, here to talk to you. Uh, I've done a lot of thinking over the past two years, and uh, and and I think that uh, we've been working on this healthcare reform message since 2009. Right, the Docs for Patient Care original group came into being when Obamacare was being litigated, and uh, at that time we were very new at this political thing. Um, we had a message. Uh, we've had essentially uh, the same message for the last. 14 years, and I think it's time for a change. I think it's time for us to completely rethink um, how we approach our, our thinking about building a new healthcare system. Um, and I, what I'd like to share with you today is, is my thoughts that I've tried to assemble and refine over the past three years and hopefully give you something new to think about, something that allows our thinking to go uh, in a different and more productive direction as we prepare for the 2024 presidential election now that the midterms are behind us and uh, and try to come up with a way to succeed a bit more uh, than we have succeeded in the last 10 years. So here we go. Uh, if you read about how to do podcasts and how to be on the radio, everyone says tell a story. People like to hear stories. Okay, let's tell a story. Let's go back to the 2020 presidential election uh, and the months leading up to it. Um, I and the president of the Doctor Patient Care Foundation, Dr. Lee Gross, were very busy. We were making a lot of trips to Washington. We were advising people on how to think about health care and to come up with a fresh approach in 2020. And we know how that turned out. And it wasn't so much a question of who won and who lost. Our disappointment was that the ideas we had worked very hard to put in front of these people, and I don't mean to take much of the credit because Dr. Gross Lee did 99% of the work. He really worked hard. They asked him for a lot of information. He pulled some all-nighters to get information to these folks at the last minute. And the huge disappointment was none of what we gave them, which they asked for, made it to the national stage. We held our breath during the last presidential debate, wondering if some of our thoughts and ideas and things that we had worked hard to give them would appear, and sadly, they did not. So it's really not a question of who won and who lost. Everyone has their own opinion about that. Uh, it's a, a matter of 
that we worked so hard to give these folks the stuff that they asked for. They invited us up there. They asked for our opinions. We didn't force it on them or invite ourselves to the party. They asked us, and in the end, we had nothing to show for it in terms of the election. Uh, my initial reaction was selfish, as you might expect. It's the easy reaction. We said, yes, we gave them brilliant stuff. We gave them great stuff. Uh, it was their fault, not our fault, but their fault for failing to recognize what they had in the palm of their hands. And had they used this, they would have done much better. Uh, both sides would have done much better. There would be a different uh, discussion going on today about health care than there is. Uh, and that's their fault, not our fault. That's their fault. Well, in the months that followed, in the years that followed through 2021 and 2022, uh, it occurred to me once a few months of historical perspective was gained that maybe there was something we could do on our end. Maybe our message wasn't as brilliant as we thought it was. Maybe our message wasn't as insightful or as helpful as we thought it was. And so that got me to thinking that we had been working on this for 10 years. And we have had pretty much the same message that we have always had, which is we docs are mad as hell. The doctor-patient relationship is sacrosanct. The third-party payer system, the government, intrudes on the doctor-patient relationship. Uh, the result is more expensive care, lousier care. Uh, everything is worse. And all that's true. Factually, all of that is true. It remains true. The problem is... I think we learned in 2020 that that message, while accurate, fails to inspire. And those are two completely different things. And what we need is a message that inspires. We need more than just to inform. We need to inspire. We need something that competes with the Medicare for All message, right? The Medicare for All message is inspiring, right? It's, it's a, it's a simple three word phrase that invokes the warm fuzzies of Medicare and says, yes, let's give that to everyone. Medicare is so wonderful, give it to everyone, right? If you only think about that issue for a few seconds, it makes perfect sense. But we know that it doesn't. And the question is, how do we take the inspirational approach rather than the facts and graphs and charts uh, approach? Uh, at one of these meetings in Washington, there was someone there and, and he hasn't given me permission to use his name, so I won't, but he really came up with the right message and said that one political party puts up a bunch of charts and graphs and, and facts and says, this is why we have to do what we do. Here's our approach. The other side puts up a picture of grandma and says, don't worry about a thing. We'll take care of grandma. Well, guess who wins? It's inspiration over information. Now, I do think you need both. But if you're short on inspiration, then the information that you have isn't going to get very far. And I think that's what happened to us in 2020, is we did not get any sort of uh, recognition in the debate because, quite frankly, we didn't deserve it, which is different than what I thought before. So I've been thinking over the past two years. So we go back to 2020, and uh, we give this some thought. And then over the next two years, we come up with with a with a different message. So, so what does that, uh, so what does that message look like? Well, I think what we need to do is come up with a message that is non-confrontational. A message that does not, uh, anger half the people in the room before you get started. Right? For instance, uh, we have defined our healthcare position in terms of Obamacare, which in the beginning was reasonable because Obamacare was what was getting litigated. So it makes sense to do, to define your position in terms of the big piece of legislation that's in front of the whole country. But as Obamacare has faded into the rearview mirror, it no longer makes any sense. 
And that's important because in the 2020 presidential debate, we had two views. One was repeal Obamacare and the other one was fix Obamacare, but both defined in terms of Obamacare. And the problem is once you mention the word Obamacare, you basically, you basically alienate half the room, right? Which half is going to like you and which half is going to hate you depends on what you say about Obamacare. If you like Obamacare, one half will like you, the other half will hate you. If you say you hate Obamacare, then just flip flop those. But the point is, you start your journey with half the people against you. So the challenge I took on myself was to come up with a narrative, an approach to healthcare, which is non-confrontational, that does not define itself in terms of Obamacare, that does not define good guys and bad guys. Because as I will hopefully demonstrate for you over this next hour, our current healthcare plight is not because the bad guys stuck it to the good guys. It is a historical accident. And you have to go back a 100 years to figure out what that historical accident has been. But I think for the most part, everyone along the way who made changes or attempted to make changes was well-intentioned. They simply didn't understand the concept of unintended consequences. And it's probably too much to expect for them to understand that. So... Let's start with a few introductory comments before we uh, reach the end of the segment. And some of this is stuff you've you've already heard before, but uh, I'm going to reiterate it again just to sort of frame the picture. And most of you who have listened to the Doctor's Lounge for these years already know 99% of this, but we're going to just frame the discussion. Now, we know that that our problem with healthcare is not what the, the uh, supporters of Medicare for All would make it out to be, right? We've heard these arguments before. America is not getting their money's worth. They spend the most per capita of any country on healthcare, and that's true. We're up above $12,000 per person per year, which is a huge amount of money and far more than anyone else spends. That part's absolutely true. The part that's not true is when they turn around and say, well, we're not getting our money's worth because because life expectancy in America is poor compared to other countries. Infant mortality is poor compared to other countries. And they use these two lousy little measurements, which only measure a sliver of the whole picture, and use this as an excuse to condemn the entire healthcare system. And, and we simply know this isn't true. Now, we'll talk about one of these right now, which is the life expectancy issue. I don't have time to talk about the other ones. But let's look at life expectancy. And let's look at Japan. Let's look at the United States versus Japan, right? Because United States allegedly has this terrible life expectancy while Japan is either the best or among the best. So in 2015, the latest year I could get really clean data, the U.S. life expectancy was 78.7 years, let's say 79 years. In Japan, for that same year, significantly better, 83.8 years, almost 84 years, right? So you're looking at about a six, five or six year difference there, which is significant. It's almost, you know, between five and 10% uh, that you'll live longer if you are Japanese. But is that the healthcare system's problem or is it something else? Well, there's a way to look at that in a rather simple way is let's look at folks who live in the United States who are Asian American. Right now, if life expectancy is a product of the healthcare system, then Japanese Americans who live in the United States should have a life expectancy more in line with the United States than with their native Japan. Because if it's the healthcare system that regulates life expectancy or influences life expectancy, then that should be it. Except it's not. So here's the numbers. United States life expectancy average, 78.7 years. 
The life expectancy in Japan, 83.8 years. Life expectancy of Asian Americans living in the United States, 86.3 years. So if you really wanted to push the data, you would say that uh, the, the healthcare system, the best possible combination is to be Asian American and live in the United States, where the, the healthcare system, if that's what you believe, is actually helping life expectancy of Japanese because Japanese folks live longer if they live in America than they do in Japan. So how is that a problem with the healthcare system if that's the theory you believe? So it's obviously more complicated than that. They're still studying this this phenomenon, and we don't know if if Asian Americans uh, get diseases, get the same diseases we do. I think they do, but do they get them at a later age, or do they get them at the same age and are able to live with them longer? Don't know yet, studying all that. But here's the thing. We don't have a problem with health care quality in this country. We have a problem with health care financing. And the first step is we need to define the problem correctly. This is one of health care financing and nothing else. We'll pick this up in the next segment. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. See you back on the other side of the break. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right, and you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I am your guest host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. I used to be a regular here three years ago or so, and I'm delighted to be back. We are working on a project here today. We're working on a better, more reasoned, less confrontational approach to health care in this country. Uh, we're trying to get away from the toxic politics that dominates the American political narrative. Um, we are refusing to hate people or cancel people because they happen to disagree with us. We're going to come up with a way of defining the healthcare problem without defining heroes and villains and to understand what I believe is the truth, which is that our healthcare system is purely a historical accident. Uh, and our problem is not the system overall. It is really down to one part of the healthcare system only, and that is how we finance healthcare. How do we pay the bill when it comes due? Everything else is either working pretty well, or if it has a problem, it is a problem directly linked to how poorly we finance healthcare. So the first thing we figured out at the end of the last segment was 
It is healthcare financing that's the problem. And this is very important because how we wordsmith this is critical. It's the problem that, that we have had ourselves all along. Uh, we can say things that are true, but if we don't wordsmith it correctly, we're not going to inspire. So we need a message that is first inspirational and second informative because without inspiration, nobody cares about your information no matter how good it is. So we're going to talk about healthcare financing, right? We figured out that Japanese Americans live longer in America than they do in Japan. So how can it be that the healthcare system in this country is killing people? It's expensive, but it does do a good job, a very good job treating people who are ill. Now, we're going to stay away from all the other conversations about prevention and all of that. Again, if you finance healthcare direct correctly, those things take care of themselves. So let's take it to the next step. To fully understand why we finance healthcare the way we do, we need to take a history lesson. We need to go back 100 years, almost exactly 100 years, I guess 93 or 94, or maybe a little bit more to be exact. We need to go back to the 1920s when healthcare financing was first discussed. Uh, in the early 1920s, healthcare had no infrastructure in this country. You paid cash for your care and you could either afford it or you couldn't. And there were discussions about how to do this. And, and the insurance model was already in place in this country, right? You could buy fire insurance, you could buy life insurance. And so people wanted to talk about health insurance. Uh, the American Medical Association was in favor of health insurance in the 1920s. Guess who wasn't in favor of health insurance in the 1920s? The insurance companies. There was no insurance company that was in favor of health insurance in the 1920s for two reasons. One was adverse selection, right? We know what that is. We still have that problem, right? That's why Obamacare makes health insurance required to get over the adverse selection problem. But they said, look, we don't want to do this. If we offer health care to a community, who's going to buy it? The sick people. And then we have a horrible risk pool because the only people who have health insurance are sick people. And clearly their premiums aren't going to cover their claims. Otherwise, they wouldn't want insurance in the first place. The other issue was something called adverse selection, and we know what that is too, which is that once you purchase health insurance, you want to buy everything because now you perceive it as open quote free, right? Quote unquote free. So the insurance companies had no problem whatsoever or, or, or no interest, I should say, whatsoever in offering a health insurance product. Until something very interesting happened. As the 1920s progressed and we drifted closer and closer to the Great Depression, hospitals were actually in horrible financial trouble. Baylor Hospital in Dallas was on the brink of financial ruin. And there is an interesting little story here that lets you understand how the first insurance, the first health insurance arrangement came to be. And this insurance was between Baylor Hospital, who was in desperate need of patients, and the Dallas Independent School District, basically the school district for the city of Dallas, which employed teachers, as you might expect, uh, came to an arrangement with Baylor Hospital that for a certain amount of money per person per month, i.e. an insurance premium, that they would provide up to 21 days of hospital stay per year if you got sick. And this worked out very well. Uh, Baylor got lots of patients, they got lots of money, and it saved them from financial ruin, as I understand it. The backstory here is that this was brokered by a person named Justin Ford Kimball. Mr. Kimball was 
first in his career the administrator for the Dallas Independent School District. While he was there, he established a sick fund, right, sort of a primitive precursor to insurance that everyone paid into the sick fund, and if someone got sick, they paid their bills out of the fund. So through this sick fund, he got a fix on how much health care was costing the school district through the sick fund. And that number was 15 cents per person per month. It's almost a laughable number when you think about today's numbers, right? We've gone from 15 cents per person per month to $12,300 per year. Uh, But then he moved. He moved from the Dallas Independent School District to, you can probably guess, the administrator at Baylor. So he was in a perfect position to broker this deal between his prior employer and his current employer. So they have an arrangement for a certain amount per member per month. You got health care coverage. But what was the price he charged? Was it 15 cents, which is what he knew the cost was? No, it wasn't. Was it 30 cents? No. 45? No, it was 50. 50 cents per person per month. So more than triple what the costs were. Now, in his defense, I'm sure they were very concerned about uh, underutilization when everything was private pay. And so there would be some correction in utilization, which was going to push that 15 cents number up in terms of the actual cost. So he didn't want to go upside down and and uh, and lose money on the deal. So he put a bunch of padding into it probably. And that's fine. I don't, again, I, I don't wish to sound like I'm condemning him for gouging, um, but it does point out several faults that happen the minute you put any sort of financing under an insurance model. Number one, the cost of health care more than tripled, right? From 15 cents per person per month to 50 cents per person per month. Number two, the true cost of health care disappears, right? All you know is 50 cents per month. You don't know what the internal numbers are if you're trying to shop. Third is that health care was now tied to your employer, right? Lose your job with the Dallas Independent School District, lose your insurance, And what else? We have a closed panel of doctors and hospitals, right? Oh, you have one hospital. You can only go to Baylor if your favorite doctor is down the road at a different hospital. You can't go there and get any sort of insurance coverage. So immediately, the ink wasn't even dry on this deal, and major problems that we still deal with today in our healthcare system, right? Limited network, hidden costs, increased costs, all those things happen the minute The ink was dry on this deal between the Dallas Independent School District and Baylor Hospital. And the other little historical caveat is that that little insurance arrangement has survived to this day, and it's called Blue Cross. This was the predecessor of Blue Cross. Blue Shield is the out-of-hospital coverage. So when you say Blue Cross, Blue Shield, all in one breath – Blue Cross was historically hospital coverage, and Blue Shield is outpatient coverage. But that uh, arrangement in a modern form continues to exist to this day. Now, was that a bad thing? Am I condemning what they did? Certainly not. And I'll tell you why. Because back in the 1920s, the insurance model was a good model to finance health care. Say that again. In the 1920s, insurance was an appropriate model to finance healthcare. Why is that? Well, you have to understand what medicine was like in the 1920s. Um, It is not what we have for medicine today. Medicine in the 1920s was largely a spectator sport, if you will. 
we had the ability to diagnose diseases, right? If your family member fell gravely ill, we did have the capacity to figure out whether that was end-stage diabetes, heart disease, cancer, an infection like pneumonia, but we didn't have any way to actually treat or fix these things. All we could do is put people in the hospital, give them some sort of vague supportive care. I mean, we really didn't even have IV fluids back then, at least not with the level of understanding that we do now. But there were no antibiotics, right? Penicillin and uh, sulfur drug, which were the two major antibiotics that first came out, really didn't come into use until the 1930s. Insulin for diabetes did come into use. Insulin was discovered in 1921, and its ability to treat diabetes was rapidly recognized. And uh, to its credit, drug maker Eli Lilly, who's still around, uh, started producing insulin in mass quantities. And uh, by the end of the 1920s, insulin was was widely available, although you know treatment was still primitive, right? We were still struggling with how to define a unit of insulin. Uh, and so diabetes treatment did come along a little bit, but it was still a bit hazardous. Um, heart disease, we didn't really have any way to treat heart disease. Uh, the, the, the first cardiac catheterization, right? When somebody says they're going to get a cath and get their angioplasty, get their vessels opened, or at least do a coronary angiogram and figure out, you know, do you have blockages in your coronary arteries in your heart or not? That's done with a cardiac catheterization. Pretty much people know that. The very first cardiac catheterization took place in the 1920s and it was very gutsy. It was uh, someone named Forsman who actually took a ureteral catheter of all things, stuck it in a vein in his arm, threaded it up his arm until it went into his heart. Then he walked the stairs downstairs to radiology with the catheter in his arm, took an x-ray, realized the catheter wasn't far enough, advanced it till it was in his heart, took another x-ray to prove what he had done. Uh, you know, amazingly gutsy. He could have caused an arrhythmia and caused himself to die on the spot if this catheter tickled the inside of his heart in the wrong spot. But um, he he got lucky, quite frankly, and was very brave um, and created heart catheterizations. But the ability to use that technique as an intervention to extend life or save life in the presence of heart disease was decades away. And in fact, the medical community condemned him for what he did. No one took it seriously. No one understood the significance of it. And in fact, he didn't even get a Nobel Prize until the mid-1950s. I want to say 1956, if memory serves. But a long time ago, and a long time that passed between when he did this amazing feat and when he didn't. So the bottom line is medicine in the 1920s was a spectator sport. We could diagnose some things, but we really couldn't treat, which meant that most medical care expenses were end-of-life expenses. Expenses. Most medical expenses were end-of-life expenses. And so health insurance looked like fire insurance, looked like life insurance, where you might have one big claim or series of claims at the end of your life, and then it was done. That's very different than what we have today, and we're going to go in the next segment and talk about how medicine changed dramatically, right? Following this age of scientific discovery in the 20s, those all get implemented in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Medicine changed like crazy, but the financing of medicine didn't. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. It's a museum, it's a showroom, it's an experience. The Classic Auto Mall in Morgantown, Pennsylvania is 336,000 square feet of rare custom and specialty automobiles on display and on consignment. From the earliest production cars to modern exotics, 
Classic Auto Mall is a feast for the eyes and the memories. Stroll through time in any season in this climate-controlled facility that you simply have to see to believe. Admission is free. Just remember to bring comfortable shoes. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. If you want the truth about politics, medicine, weapons, classic cars, and more, you'll want to tune in to America's Web Radio. You can listen to all of your favorite shows live at www.americaswebradio.com or on demand on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. That's www.americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchek, your guest host today. Once again, glad to be with you. Uh, we were working on our project to come up with a less confrontational, less politically toxic approach to discussing improvements in our healthcare system. And at the end of the last segment, we had just gotten to the point in the U.S. historical timeline where the first health insurance policy was created between Baylor University Hospital and the Dallas Independent School District, and that arrangement ultimately went on to become Blue Cross. So it must have worked pretty well because it's, in some form or another, still around. Uh, and the, what we didn't touch on quite before the end of the segment was that the employer-based model solved a lot of these problems that we had talked about earlier. Remember, health insurers didn't want to do health insurance because of adverse selection and moral hazard. The adverse selection being that <clears throat> if you – the only people who want health insurance are the people who are already sick. And so that was a problem. Well, this is – this problem got solved by offering health insurance through an employer, now you get rid of the adverse selection problem because all the employees sign up or almost all the employees sign up. And and so no more adverse selection problem takes care of that. And that's great. So these systems flourished, right? There were now multiple employers and multiple hospitals entering these contracts. It spread from Dallas to other cities. And over the next 10 or 15 years, this insurance model flourished. It skyrocketed. And it was doing well, as it should have. Because as we discussed at the end of the last segment, the insurance model was a pretty good match with the nature of medical practice in the early part of the 20th century. In that medicine was largely, as we called it last segment, a spectator sport. We knew how to diagnose a lot of things. We were pretty powerless to treat a lot of things. A diagnosis of diabetes was a death sentence. It was just a matter of when your sugars got high enough for you to go into something called diabetic ketoacidosis. And when that got bad enough, your brain started to swell. And once your brain starts to swell, that's pretty much the end. Cancer, pretty much the same thing. Just follow it until it takes your life and such as it was with heart disease and other things. So in the mid-20th century, that began to change. 
and I can use myself as an example. I'm going to violate my own medical privacy. I think I have the legal and moral authority to do that. But I can compare myself to my father. We both have the same list of diseases, right? Coronary artery disease, hypertension, diabetes, sleep apnea, and gout. Now, my father, who was born in 1935 and died in 1995 at the age of 60, suffered from all these diseases, tried to treat all these diseases, and struggled, right? For sleep apnea, there was no CPAP machines. Uh, for diabetes, there wasn't a lot of good medicines. Coronary artery disease, there was no angioplasty, pretty much. It was only bypass surgery, which he had when he was 53, uh, and, and so that was pretty much how things could be done. Now he died at the age of 60 in 1995 and I just turned 60 a couple of months ago. And I think I'm doing better, but on February 18th, I will be as old as my father was when he died. So in a little over a month, God willing, and we pray it happens, looks like it should, that I will live longer than my dad did. Partly because all these diseases I have been able to treat much better because I'm a generation farther along. So I've had a sleep at, uh, a CPAP machine for 20 years. I take blood pressure medicine that doesn't have any side effects. My father was horribly ruined by the side effects of his blood pressure medicine and he wouldn't take it. Part of the reason he died young. Diabetes, it's mild. We're treating it. The medicines are easy to take. One of them is a once a week injection. That's going well. And so hopefully I will outlive my dad. But you can see going through generations at a very personal level for me that disease treatment's a whole lot better. And I should live a lot longer, we hope, than my father did. And it, and it pans out in the United States as a whole, right? The life expectancy in the United States in 1920, right, near when this whole insurance model began was 53 years. By 1970, it was 71 years, and by 2020, it was 79 years. So if you do the math, we enjoy almost twice as many adult years of life in 2020 than we did in 1920, right? That's a big change in 100 years. Now, the bad news is we didn't make disease go away. And in fact, we didn't even cure very much. We don't talk about cures in medicine. You don't hear doctors using the word cure very much. We manage disease and that allows people to live better and to live longer. But these diseases don't go away, right? My diabetes didn't go away. I have to take expensive medicine every month and there's a recurring bill for that. And so it is with all of, you know, the other medical problems that my father and I both had. They're ongoing expenses, right? It's not like taking your car to a mechanic and getting a water pump changed. It's fixed for all time. You just, you know, no one has to go back to the mechanic on a regular basis to check on the water pump to make sure it's working. You just know it's working because you can drive the car. Humans are different. We don't cure things. We manage things. And instead of uh, a, a model of medicine, the spectator model of medicine, that we talked about the 1920s is we diagnosed you and then gave you some sort of prognosis, but basically we we could not intervene in the natural history of your disease. As the 20th century progressed, we got very good at intervening, right? Antibiotics came along, we could treat pneumonia. Insulin came along, we could treat diabetes. Surgery and anesthesia came along, and so cancer operations and operations for other reasons you know, perhaps infectious diseases, draining an abscess, that kind of thing. 
all became practical and acceptably safe through the mid part of the 20th century. Cardiac catheterization got to the point where we could actually intervene in open blocked coronary arteries. Sometimes without bypass surgery, we could do it with a balloon. And that's gotten better and better and better. So we now have a change, a significant change in the nature of the practice of medicine through the 20th century. We've gone from a spectator sport to a participation sport. But in doing so, not only did the cost of medicine go up astronomically, right? It's not terribly expensive to watch people die. It's expensive to extend their life. Excuse me. Um, But this becomes more expensive. But what else happens? Now, that insurance model that was such a good model back in the 1920s when we just had one group of claims near the end of your life, now claims are ongoing and continuous and predictable. And that last one is why the insurance model begins to fall apart to finance health care when medicine becomes a participation sport and we became good at what we did. Now, all of a sudden, if you're diagnosed with diabetes, for example, you know you're going to have a lifetime of medicine, doctor visits, Lots of other things, right? Once we figured out how to keep people from dying from diabetic ketoacidosis, they lived long enough to get other complications, right? In med school, you learn about the big three. Diabetic nephropathy hurts your kidneys. Neuropathy hurts your nerves. Retinopathy hurts your eyes. So now, not only are you treating the diabetes itself, you're treating the eye problems, the kidney problems, you're doing limb amputations, you you know, you're treating vascular disease, all these things. And so, you know, the cost of medicine not only goes up, but it goes up predictably. And that's where the insurance model fails, because insurance is not designed to pay for predictable events. Right? If I know I'm going to jump off a cliff, no one's going to give me life insurance. If I know I'm going to get medical expenses because of my existing diseases, why would anybody give me medical insurance unless they can raise the premiums enough to pay for what we know I'm going to need? And that's the problem. It's purely a financing problem. So whenever insurance gets expanded to cover regular checkups, you know, if a regular checkup cash price is $100, insurance adds $150 to the price of your premium, and then you have to beg for $100 back when you go get your annual checkup. Therein lies the problem, is as the nature of medicine changed, the nature we paid for it didn't, and the insurance model became more and more and more inefficient. So that's what happens on the medicine side. Now, what happened on the insurance side? Now, all of a sudden, we're seeing a completely different track for what's happening in the insurance part of the picture. In the insurance part of the picture, although medicine was changing, the insurance was becoming more and more firmly entrenched and firmly protected by regulations. So let's go through those. Let's move down the timeline to World War II. Right, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor's attacked, America's in the war. We mobilize a war effort. All the able-bodied people, individuals were recruited to the war effort. So what did that create? It created a huge labor shortage back home. 
What happens when you get a labor shortage? Price of labor goes up. Wages were going up, and the government quite reasonably stepped in. And they created something called the Stabilization Act of 1942, right? First complete calendar year we were in the war. The government passed a law that froze wages. So you could not compete for scarce employees by offering them more pay. But there was one very interesting exemption to the wages. And it wasn't actually wages per se, but it was medical benefits. So there was no regulation on benefits, but there was a regulation on wages. And then the IRS came along the following year, and here's the big one, is that Medical benefits were non-taxable, right? We talk about that all the time, right? That's the, that's the main thing that keeps employer-based health insurance. The strongest player in the market is that the money that you and your company use, usually it's combined, to pay for your health insurance is not subject to income tax. That came from 1942. So those two laws together, the Stabilization Act of 1942 and the IRS ruling subsequent to that to say that the benefits were not taxable was like throwing gasoline on a fire. Now, not only did insurance basically flourish to almost every reasonably sized employer in America, but the benefits went up and up and up and up because it was the only way that uh, that employers couldn't compete for employees. That was it. And so now we had not just hospital benefits, because remember the original insurance policies only covered hospital, right? They were really catastrophic only, which is an important thing to remember. The original health insurance was only catastrophic. Now the reason that it worked. Now all of a sudden outpatient was covered. Prescriptions were covered. Vision was covered. Dental was covered. They continued to do this until we have the fully comprehensive insurance that we enjoy today. All right, come up on the end of the segment. Kind of snuck up on me here a little bit. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. When it comes to car magazines, are you tired of reading about mega-dollar collector cars you can't afford or endless reporting on auctions and how-to tech stories that don't interest you? Then Crankshaft is the car magazine for you. Crankshaft is a 144-page softcover quarterly filled with all sorts of fascinating stories, the type of car features you won't find anywhere else. It features American and foreign cars, pre- and post-war era cars of distinction including sports cars, muscle cars, and regular family sedans too. To discover what many car enthusiasts are saying is the best car magazine ever published, you can purchase either a single copy for $12.95 plus $3 postage, or a one-year subscription, four issues, for $59.95. To order your copy, go to www.crankshaftmagazine.com. That's www.crankshaftmagazine.com. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge, fourth and final segment of the day. I'm Dr. Mike Karuchek, your host on America's Web Radio. Thanks for sticking with us the whole time. we got a lot of material to cover. Uh, we are going to wrap up in this segment our project of developing a new narrative, a new framework in which to discuss how we improve our healthcare system that is non-political, non-confrontational, and basically is based on the notion that our healthcare financing model – the insurance-based financing model is a historical accident. It is not the product of evil triumphing over good. There are not good guys. There are not bad guys. There is no one to hate. There is no one to worship. It simply is what it is. It is a product of history. And when we think about how to make things better, we need to keep those thoughts in mind. So at the end of the last segment, we had sort of wrapped up the legislative changes in the early part or say first half of the 20th century, which had firmly protected insurance, employer-based insurance for healthcare as the method of financing. And we discussed some legislation that happened in the early 1940s about World War II, something called the Stabilization Act of 1942, which established healthcare benefits as unregulated and untaxable. And there was another act I forgot to mention that was called the Revenue Act of 1942, which said that any excess profit a company had relative to pre-war was taxed at 90%. So now you have a company who's making money during the war, who has to spend that money or 90% of it's going to get taxed away. They're competing for scarce labor, and the only way they have to entice that labor to sign on to work is by making better and better health insurance benefits. So, of course, it spreads like wildfire. And by the 1960s, anybody who was employed probably had access to insurance. That may be an overstatement, but certainly a lot of people who were employed had access to health care insurance. And so right about the time when medicine was becoming capable enough that insurance was no longer the appropriate model to finance health care, Insurance was firmly entrenched. It was so protected and enhanced by regulations that it was here to stay and remains here present day. So that was where we were as we went into the 60s. Now we come into the 60s. Uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson succeeds Kennedy as president and comes up with this notion of the Great Society and comes up with many different things, all of which were good, including Medicare and Medicaid. And Social Security. But even Medicare and Medicaid had issues with, again, side effects, um, you know, unintended consequences. And I'm not saying they were bad. We certainly need them. We should have passed them. But that doesn't mean that they're perfect. And it means that we had some issues. 
And those issues are how doctors were paid under Medicare and Medicaid. And that was something called a usual and, <clears throat> excuse me, customary fee. Right, where that's completely foreign to us now. Now Medicare and Medicaid have a schedule, and that schedule is getting constantly adjustment and adjusted, and it's at the bottom of the pay scale. But uh, back then, amazingly, whatever you charged, you got paid. Unheard of today. But that instantly injected 19 million patients into the demand pool for medical services. 19 million patients. Doctors were overwhelmed. And not only that, but this now was being paid by a disinterested third party. Now you had no downward pressure on prices because whatever you build that third party, they paid. It's like having a rich uncle that says, you know, go on Amazon and, and buy any TV you want, right? Whatever it is, I'll pay it. So what are you going to do? Yeah, you're going to buy the 60 inch, you know, best of class, you know, and spend four grand on it because it's not your money. And that's exactly what happened in the opening years of Medicare and Medicaid is that healthcare spending skyrocketed, number one, because now all of these patients who couldn't afford healthcare before now can afford it. That's obviously good. But the government was paying prices that, that had absolutely no downward pressure. And so spending went through the roof. Again, was Medicare, Medicaid bad? Certainly not. But the, uh, the, the, the effect of dumping all these people into the demand pool caused prices to skyrocket. Demand stayed high because there was no, the, the, the rising prices didn't turn people away because the care was too expensive. And so now we essentially created the full version of the problem that we have today. So then what happened? Well, over the next several decades, I mean, between 1966 and, and 2009, when Obamacare was passed, we have a long list, actually both before and after Obamacare, of, of legislation that was passed to try to change the way we pay for health care. And these were passed by both political parties again. And I'm going to emphasize that, that if you must assign blame, Republicans and Democrats both messed with this thing and they both screwed it up. All right, starting with the HMO Act of 1973. That was Richard Nixon, right? Then we had the uh, the diagnosis-related groups thing. That came in 1983, right? Who was president then? Reagan. Then in 1989, you know, this concept of, of an existing fee schedule was expanded to physicians. That was 1989. In 1997 was the sustainable growth rate model, which was a real disaster. It was never actually used, right? Because every year between 2003 and 2014, a panicked Congress had to pass what was called the doc fix. And some of you may remember that. And so we never knew what Medicare was going to pay year to year because every year the sustainable growth rate formula forecasted a 20% drop in Medicaid payment or Medicare payments. And doctors would have left in droves, so there was a big panic about that. So every single one of these Band-Aid methods, including Obamacare, and then after Obamacare, there have been several things passed to try and regulate healthcare spending. One was to get rid of the sustainable growth rate formula and come up with something else. So all of these meddling, all of this meddling hasn't worked. And we basically have the same problem that we had before, which is that insurance is the wrong financial model to pay for health care. 
not only because it's expensive in and of itself, because it's the wrong model, right? We no longer, you know, most healthcare is not a risk event. That's the problem. Insurance pays for risk events, right? Life insurance, you're betting you're going to die. They're betting that you're not. And so it's, it's term life insurance. By the time your death becomes predictable, the life insurance is no longer in effect if you have term life insurance. So classic example, car insurance, same thing, right? Car insurance is like catastrophic insurance for healthcare. It doesn't pay for gas and tires or any other predictable expense. It only pays for what's not predictable, right? Insurance is only good for unforeseen, unpredictable expenses. It's the risk concept. Today, the vast majority of medicine are predictable events, predictable spending, and when you use an insurance company to finance that, all you're doing is creating a middleman who takes your money in the form of premiums, and then you beg for it back in terms of payments every time you get a checkup, a prescription, anything. And that's the fundamental problem. That's why all these things couldn't fix it. The Republicans couldn't fix it. The Democrats couldn't fix it. As long as you have insurance paying for every single medical event, this cannot and will not be fixed. And the longer it stays in place, the worse it gets. Because not only is the model itself expensive, but it naturally gives rise to other things. And you've heard other physicians, probably other colleagues in this space, talk about other entities that suck money out of the system without giving anything in return, right? And the probably the most popular one to talk about is pharmacy benefit managers, right? The Caremark, the Optum, all these things. You know, these are the richest people you've never heard of. And there's a lot written about it. There's a particular doc who's based up in Pennsylvania. I know her. I love her. I think she's great. She's fighting a good battle against these things. But what I don't think we recognize to this point is that these Things are not the product of evil people that want to take our money and give us nothing in return. I'm not saying there aren't pockets of that or that they don't understand perfectly well what they're doing. But the existence of pharmacy benefit managers, which is that pharmacy middleman that has all of these regulatory support to allow them to do rebates and kickbacks and all these things that are illegal for everybody else but are legal for them – you know, they're the reason that insulin can't be afforded. They're the reason that EpiPens were $600. They're the reason that until recently diabetics had to choose between insulin and food, which is an ironic, bitter choice. Uh, we also have these things called group purchasing organizations that exist between hospitals and vendors. They used to be a nice intermediary that would use volume purchasing to reduce prices, just like pharmacy benefit managers were supposed to do. But over time, they became their own profit-making entity, and then that's where the moral hazard comes in. My point to you about all of these middlemen in healthcare is they're not intrinsically evil. They are a natural consequence of a fundamentally flawed system, which is to use insurance to pay for every single little routine thing from your checkups to your regular prescriptions to everything except catastrophic. Everything except the God forbid events. And so it makes no sense to draw your sword and treat them if they're evil. All you will do is alienate people just like if you try to define your health reform in terms of Obamacare. We need to come up with a better approach that doesn't demonize anybody. 
doesn't demonize the Democrats, doesn't demonize the Republicans, doesn't demonize insurance companies or hospitals or pharmacy benefit managers or group purchasing organizations. They're all a part of the problem, but they're all a natural consequence of history, not an arbitrary creation of evil people. And I think that's a very important distinction as we try to look ahead and understand how we're going to talk about change without creating enough political enemies or so many political enemies that as good as your ideas might be, they'll never get off the ground because to be brutal with the language, you're pissing people off before you even get a chance to venture actual ideas. We need something inspirational, not confrontational. So we're talking ideas over people, inspiration over confrontation. We're talking about a different approach. And I think looking at this in a historical context and understanding that where we are is the result of unintended consequences, not premeditated evil, will help. So we're almost at the end of the show. I'm going to wrap up the the remarks here. Hopefully I'll get another chance to guest host soon and we can talk about what to do going forward. But for now, I think this represents a newer approach to the discussion of healthcare that allows everyone to at least start on the same page and maybe, just maybe, make a little progress. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking around for the whole hour. You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.